Welcome, listeners, to this episode of Shooting from the Hip, brought to you by SimTrain, the Dayton area's leader in firearms training. You can visit us on the web at sim-trainer.com. You can give us a call at the store at 937-293-3914, or you can stop by the range, which is located at 2031 Dryden Road in Moraine, and we'd be more than glad to discuss with you any of your firearms-related needs or interests. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to make about this or any of our previous shows, you can visit our website and click on the contact page and under the contact button, um, you can fill in the information that's requested and send us a note and we'll be sure to get back to you. And if we feel the question or comment is relevant to the broader community, we will be sure to bring that up on a subsequent uh, episode so that everybody benefits from the response or from any comments that you make that might be relevant to what's going on. As we mentioned uh, back a few weeks ago, we said that we were going to talk about um, issues that are in the news. And uh, this past week, there was a tragic, horrific, terrible incident that occurred out in California, in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, where a, a crazed gunman got up at the high ground, 32nd uh, story of a, a hotel, and uh, rained uh, evil gunfire down on um, some people that were attending a country concert at one of the venues along the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, at least uh, current numbers are that there's at least 58 that have been killed uh, by the gunman and another several hundred who are injured, many of them critical still in the hospital. Um, before the issue really got out to the broader population, there were um, gun control advocates uh, calling for gun control in a variety of ways. And uh, what I want to talk about on this show um, primarily is the the one issue that's come up is relative has to do with uh, a device that was uh, attached to at least a few of the guns that the gunman used. It's currently referred to as a bump stock. It's essentially a stock and grip um, co- combination unit that has a little extension in front of the grip that the um, the shooter rests his finger on um, and then uh, utilizes a technique whereby they pull forward on the um, the front end of the gun and activate the gun, which can, depending on how you do this, create like and similar fire to that that you experience when a gun is fired in full automatic mode. Now, there's been a lot of misconception, and that's mainly due to the fact that even among the gun community, the bump stock is a relatively obscure device. It's not something that everybody knows about. It's certainly not something that the majority of gun owners have. Um, it's estimated just, again, these are broad estimates, but there have only been um, in the thousands of them produced, and yet there are uh, tens of millions of gun owners uh, who don't have them. Um, I happen to own one. Um, I have had them at our store for several years. Uh, the few that I have sold to people, and I've contacted at least three other people, they haven't even taken them out of the box to try them. I'm aware of one individual I just found out today that uh, had, in fact, uh, tried his on two occasions, um, enjoyed his experience. They typically get them, um, contrary to what you hear out there as to what their purpose is and what their intended use is, uh, this is the first known case where a bump stock has been used in a criminal act, um, but most people get them to experience the the, the uh, similar um, action of the gun going off in a rapid succession as they would get if they would shoot a full automatic weapon. Now, you have to understand that Full automatic weapons are highly regulated. Um, there are only about 175,000 of those in circulation currently, and they're owned by um, a number of people. Um, so they're hard to get. The cost of a typical full automatic gun is between seven and $35,000. 
That's seven thousand and thirty-five thousand is a uh, a range with a few being in the five to six thousand, and then another few being in the thirty-five to fifty thousand, and the broader bulk of them being between those those numbers. Um, these are numbers that have been provided by the ATF and other individuals and organizations that uh, do um, compile data relative uh, to full automatic weapons. But since the people can't afford them or don't want to pay that price, yet they want to experience what it feels sort of like to shoot a full automatic weapon, they've gone out and purchased a bump fire stock that um, as close as is practicable without making the gun fully automatic replicates that um, firing uh, rate, rate of fire. And um, like I mentioned, there aren't a whole lot of them in production when you consider the total number of guns that are in circulation. And as I mentioned just a couple seconds ago, it's the first instant we're aware of where anybody's used that kind of a, a device, an, an add-on device for uh, to commit a criminal act. Now, obviously, um, this has sparked the, the gun control um, people to raise the issue again that we need more gun control in this country. Now, I will tell you that uh, I know I was one of the first people that spoke out on this topic last week, uh, both um, publicly and privately. Um, Shortly thereafter, the NRA and the Second Amendment Foundation spoke out. And um, just today, the National Shooting Sports Foundation and SAMI, which is the Sporting Arms and Ammunition Manufacturers Institute, issued formal statements. And all of them are pretty much uh, centered around this fact. They're saying that We believe a discussion needs to be happening, but before anything is done, they all think that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives should interpret and enforce existing laws and regulations, and they're asking that the ATF conduct a prompt review and evaluation of the aftermarket uh, bump stocks that are in question here and determine whether they are lawful to install and use on firearms under the National Firearms Act of 1934. Now, they recommend that that be done before there's any discussion because they want the discussion to be based on factual information and a lot of that factual information being gathered by people like the ATF who are looking at this um, uh, with a rational mind and able to do some strict interpretation of past uh, or current laws that are currently on the books rather than jumping to the conclusion as the anti-gun community would want, we need legislation right now. Um, So that's kind of where we're at in the it's not really a discussion because a discussion is a, a two-way flow of information with, uh, you know, maybe in this case it would be the anti-gun community, the pro-gun community talking about their concerns, bringing up issues, talking about the issues back and forth, having a discussion back and forth, and then maybe they come to some resolution. Right now there's just a lot of um, stuff being thrown out there, people making statements that many of which aren't based on any facts. They're based primarily on emotion, and we understand that. Mark and I and the rest of the the pro-gun community, we understand that things like this cause a surge of emotion among people in society, whether you're pro-gun, anti-gun, or you don't have an opinion either way. Well, if if you still have a pulse and you saw what happened, you couldn't help but have an emotional reaction to that kind of action. I mean, it's it's. It, it it just creates a visceral response of yeah. of disgust of why would anybody do something like this? It's not the right question really to ask because it's too late to ask why. What we have to find out is what can we do to address these kinds of situations and what can be done that will have a real effect. And, and that is, I think, probably 
one of the most important questions that often gets lost in all of the discussion and all of the recommendations that have been made so far, not one of them would have done anything to prevent this action or to stop it earlier. You know, and many times, and, and just to Mark's point, uh, this man was under the radar. There was nothing in his past that brought anybody's attention in any way, shape, or form, whether it was from he purchased legally after going through background checks multiple firearms. There was nothing in his background that those background checks tapped into relative to his mental instability or any other issue, um, no protection orders, no histories of, of domestic violence, nothing that would have uh, uh, stopped him from purchasing the firearm. The stock itself, the bump stock, is not a regulated item in the sense that it requires a, a background check. It's something you could just walk into at a sports sporting goods retailer that sells guns that carries this particular item, and you could just purchase off the shelf and make the adaptation yourself. So there was nothing that could have stopped this particular incident. A short of, of course, we don't know all the details, Mark, and, and, and each day it seems like what what an, uh, a terrible the more situation comes out. Well, that just what a terrible situation this must be for law enforcement yeah. because the media, as is typically the case, and a larger to extent maybe the bit larger public, they want answers. Well, they don't have answers yet because they're still in the midst of an investigation, and the investigation does lead does lead down different paths, and sometimes it leads down a path that you think is going to take you to the promised land, when in fact it leads to a dead end, and then they got to retrace their steps and kind of drop back and, and maybe take a different route. So they don't know all the details, they don't know all the facts. Each day or every couple of days, different bits and pieces of information are kind of clouding the total investigation. If we would just let them do their job and not be so pushy to uh, get, you know, why, why this, what this, and when did he do this, and what about this timeline, and what about that timeline? They don't have that answer yet. Well, and, and the other thing that often they do have in many of these situations is statements from the person, the, the perpetrator himself, usually him, uh, and he's either written something, he's posted something, he's got documents on his computer, he uh, has things in his, in his apartment or his house, that gives an, an indication as to what the mindset was, what he was thinking about, what led him in that direction. And in this case, there hasn't been much. There certainly hasn't been anything that I've seen reported. Yeah. There's been very little information that was available from what we can tell so far. And that's been very frustrating for law enforcement. And they've even acknowledged that in some of the reports, the, the reports that they've given to the press that, you know, this is a different situation. Yeah. Well, early on, you know, many of the gun control advocates were using the phraseology. This was in the first day or two. Now we need to get serious about background checks. Well, let me tell you something. Let me use Ohio as an example. Ohio in 2015 went to the expanded extensive background check system. It is so, um, uh, it, it, it is so all-encompassing that once an individual has a concealed handgun license issued after March of uh, something March March 20 of March of uh, 2015 March, yeah, that, that they do not have to have a background check to be conducted when they purchase firearms as long as that uh, license remains valid now the nice thing about that is an individual who gets their license can purchase a gun or purchase guns anytime they want they still have to complete the 4473 transfer form and do that at the gun retailer's location but it doesn't have to go through the system because the individuals already have 
already had the most extensive background check that can be conducted on the civilian population in circumstances like this. But again, you've got people who really don't understand the process. They say, we need to get more in depth. We need to expand the, the mental health information that's in there. I mean, somebody just the other day said, well, if a person's on Xanax or they've got some kind of anxiety, then maybe we need to look at that. And I'm thinking, my goodness, how, how, in, how invasive are we going to go into uh, members of the population when we have an overreaction to one incident? And I want to bring up one issue that I think uh, I just want our listeners to think about. In the last couple years in this country, we had San Bernardino incident, mass casualty, we had um, the discotheque down in Florida, and now we have this horrific incident out in um, um, Las Vegas. I don't know the total number, but probably right around 100 people killed and hundreds more critically injured. And every time it happens, the gun control people cry and scream. But I just saw a statistic today. They just passed over 500 deaths in Chicago gun-related this year already, and they're on pace to beat last year's record of 700 and some fatalities and thousands of injuries related to gun violence, yet they live in the state that has the toughest gun control. And the point I want to make is, why aren't they daily or weekly standing up and saying, we've had enough, we got to do something? Because this has been going on, Mark, for years now. But why is it that when they're a bunch of um, law-abiding um, country music fans are in a venue out in Las Vegas that all of a sudden they want to go ahead and shout their rhetoric, but yet when daily, each and every day, each and every week, each and every month, hundreds of people are being killed, not only in Chicago, but in inner cities around the country, and for some reason they don't want to make comment and they don't want to address those issues. It's, it's not unlike the problem with traffic deaths. They happen every day or nearly every day. They don't happen in every community every day, but they and and it's gotten to the point where if that led the national news, there wouldn't be anything else to talk about. And the same thing is going on with as much violence as there is in Chicago. I I think the media and the public in general have become numb to it, and not that that they don't think it's important. But it's almost a, f- a futility, a throwing up of the hands. That and and says that's my point. We're and that's my point. They have thrown up their hands in, a, in a, at least a gesture of futility, but yet they think for some reason in this horrific, very unusual incident, they're going to be able to make a difference when on other areas where I really think as a career law enforcement officer, I think there are measures that have been proven effective with types of law enforcement, the way communities are, are, are um, um, you know, energized well, and different things that New can York happen. That's exactly right. Of course, they like to downplay that, and that's the absolute falsehood. Mayor Giuliani and his successor turned that around in a very short period of time because of aggressive police tactics and the way they did things, and they held people to the, the criminal penalties that were associated with the relative crimes rather than going the opposite direction, letting drug dealers out early, decriminalizing certain actions, um, not prosecuting certain crimes, and, and basically, and it's, it's not, I'm not the first one that said this, but discouraging the police from taking aggressive action in the communities where there's extreme violence. The bottom line is that needs to happen. Now, relative to that issue and more particular to this issue, when we talk about um, rights of individuals, and in a few minutes I'm going to pretty much turn the microphone over to Mark, um, but we talk about rights to individuals. The courts 
particularly the Supreme Court, when they look at constitutional issues, whether it's Fourth Amendment search and seizure, First Amendment um, free speech, Second Amendment gun rights, whatever the issue, Fifth Amendment uh, right to, to counsel, they typically apply Sixth what's Amendment. called a balancing test, a balancing test um, where they say they're going to balance the individual rights guaranteed them by the Constitution against the government's um, uh, what they declare to be essential duty to somehow regulate rights in the interest of the greatest good. They call it a balancing test, and it's been applied across areas of law for many years. And right, wrong, or indifferent, that's how cases get decided. They don't just say, well, it looks like it's this versus this, and therefore we're deciding this way. They, there's a lot of discussion. And I have to say, one of the interesting things, if you want to talk about a discussion, if you read a majority and dissenting opinions in Supreme Court cases in particular, they have, in many cases, totally opposite opinions on, on, in many cases. And some of the justices have very similar opinions except for an issue or two one way or the other. But at least there's dialogue and there is truly discussion and, and um, those kinds of things go into the ultimate decision. And I want to bring that up just because when we talk about balancing tests later on, we're going to be addressing this issue and maybe assessing how courts legislators and or the ATF are going to look at some of the th- well issues. you you have uh, there's one other type of written opinion that you, it can also be very interesting you you mentioned the majority opinion and the dissenting opinion but sometimes there's also a concurring opinion yes. where yes. you have yes. an opinion that says well we agree with the majority in the ruling but we have different issues that we think should have been Relative included to the rationale. Yeah. yeah. And so they think, you know, here are some other things that ought to be included and should be uh, part of part of the stare decisis, part of yeah. the well, things that have already been decided. And the good thing about that is that gets to be part of the record so that in subsequent cases they can at least look back and see, well, you know what, Justice so-and-so raised that issue. Yeah, we thought about that. And we maybe need to revisit that or something to that effect. But it is neat. And I think it's a rather unique way. But when you talk about truly a discussion, when you look at Supreme Court case, the, the way decisions, you know, sometimes it's nine to nothing. Um, you know, then, then obviously Lately, everybody pretty much agrees. Too often, that's not too has, often, but it sometimes it is nine yeah. to nothing. But other times it's just neat to look back and the reason I know that is because for several semesters in college, being a criminal justice student, we were required to read case law. And in, in two of our instructors would make us argue the one opinion versus the other, and we had to read the uh, the, the uh, majority or the... Um, um, the dissenting or... Yeah, dissenting the, opinion, yeah. and we'd have to make an argument about why that was the case. It was just to kind of expand our breadth and depth of knowledge and make us think outside the box. And it was a pretty valuable exercise because it really did help shed some light on the issues. But in this particular issue, um, let's get right down to it. The the big debate right now, um, I think, is that there are some of us who think that the bump stock is not a firearm and is not a part of a firearm that's regulated by the Second Amendment. And there are other people who feel otherwise. And that's where I want right now to kind of, I'm going to let Mark talk a little bit about his his opinion because this this forum, I think, is critical for people to be able to express opinions. Uh, Mark and I agree on most things, and we disagree on a lot of things. And that's what's good about it, because we can have dialogue relative to, and he's convinced me to maybe change my opinion on a couple of other things. I don't know if I've done the same thing with him, but um, he's at least been able to convince me. Well, I have a few more years on you, too. Yes, you do. Wisdom wisdom does get a little bit of a a check for for an advantage. But uh, anyway, my personal opinion 
uh, about the bump stock is that it's an aftermarket accessory add-on to a gun, um, and it is not governed by the Second Amendment. And therefore, I also, and I called for this uh, even before those major organizations called for it, for them to reassess whether or not the functional operation of the device makes it more like as the the National Firearms Act, um, and this is an area of the act that often goes un kind of undiscussed. When they define a machine gun, the first part they always talk about, and it's the same case in Ohio, they say that a machine gun it includes a firearm which can fire more than one cartridge per trigger pull. But then the latter part of that definition says a non-machine gun that may be converted to fire, there's the key term, may be converted to fire more than one shot per trigger pull by ordinary mechanical skills is determined to be, quote, readily convertible and therefore constitutes a machine gun is governed by the act. Okay, now that that's a, a really important point because when they talk about readily convertible, they're talking about converting the mechanism, the firing mechanism, the fire control mechanism. It still is a question of does it fire more than one round per trigger pull and it does it mean it's readily convertible? In other words, if you just pull out a pin or flip a switch or you know do something to it that the average person with average skills and average mechanical capabilities as opposed to an advanced machine shop with you know CNC milling and all the other kinds of things that you would expect at a gunsmith or a firearms manufacturing facility that is not what they're talking about in that last in that last section but they're talking about if you have a firearm that is designed to be easily converted to automatic fire, then we'll also call that an automatic firearm. Now, how does that differ from the bump stock? The bump stock does not convert the firing mechanism at all. All it does is change the way your hand uh, operates the trigger. Now, it does make it much easier to pull the trigger quickly by just holding your finger in place and as they describe, uh, pushing the gun, you, you basically, for anybody who hasn't used one of these before, you shoulder the firearm as you normally would, uh, but you release the slide on on a on the bump stock so that it's it's movable, and then with your finger on the frame of the stock, you push the firearm against your finger and that activates the trigger. Every time the gun fires, then the recoil pushes it off the trigger, and you push the gun back against your trigger. So, let, let me just interrupt one, one second because what Mark's saying is critical, and it's important to understand the major debate right now will come down to what pull trigger means versus activate the trigger device. Now, some people say it's one and the same. Other people say it's two separate processes. For example, if you drop a gun on the ground and the trigger makes the gun go off or some device makes the gun go off, nobody pulled the trigger. If you take the gun and you put it on uh, or you hold it where, a, a say, like a pen is fastened to a table and you put a piece of the pen in the trigger guard and you push forward on the gun and it pulls the trigger, are you pulling the trigger or are you activating the trigger? The bump stock, on the other hand, in the true sense, when somebody thinks pull the trigger, when the common person before this device was a, a topic, the concept of pulling the trigger meant you put your finger on or around the trigger and you pull your finger to the rearward position. In this particular case, and you would have to look at a bump stock on online and see that there is what's called a finger rest that Mark was describing 
on the frame of the gun just above where the the grip is and you rest your finger on it and it cannot pull to the rear what you have to do is take the gun and you actually have to pull the end of the gun forward so that the trigger hits the stationary finger and then the recoil of the gun pushes it to the rear and your continued forward pushing on the um, the end of the gun causes the trigger to engage your finger each and every time. So one of the critical considerations here, both I think legally and among people having the discussion, is what constitutes pull of the trigger because both the federal law and the state of Ohio law talks about with one pull of the trigger, quote unquote. Well, read read the words again. It's where you where the one activation of the trigger is. No, it says that it includes any firearm which can fire more than one cartridge per trigger pull. That's the first part of the. Okay, but but now the the sorry, the the part of the 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 factor here is, what does it take to activate the firing mechanism? Is it something that you can do with one action, or is it something that requires either multiple actions or continuous action? For example, a Gatling gun is not considered an automatic weapon. Because in order to operate it, you must... Now, this is obviously a manual, but it it has a a hand crank. And even though you turn the crank and it fires X number of rounds for each revolution, if you stop turning the handle, the gun stops firing. That is not considered an automatic weapon. The same thing is true of the AR-15 with a bump stock. If you stop pushing forward on the stock, then... You it it is you're no longer activating the trigger and and the gun stops firing. So if you pull on the trigger and you don't do anything else but just hold it in place, then that is in and it continues to fire. That's an automatic firearm. So that's really where that where that line of demarcation falls. And even Wait a though Clar- clarify right there for the audience, Mark, when you talked about if you pull on the trigger and it continues to fire, if you have a bump stock adapted gun and you stop doing the bump bump stock technique and you just pull on the trigger, it will not continue to fire full automatic. I believe what Mark was talking about is another gun that is full automatic. Yeah, exactly. You pull on the trigger. I just want to yeah. make sure because you were talking about bump stock no, and then you went to the. What I, yeah. Okay. And thanks. But the the key there is that. If it's an automatic weapon, when you pull on the trigger and just hold it, and the gun continues to fire until you let go or it runs out of ammo, that that's an automatic. Or and it may it may not continue to fire. It may stop firing after a few rounds. So burst fire is also considered an automatic weapon. The difference between that and the bump stock is that you have to continually push forward on the stock. So every time the gun fires, it recoils. You have to push the stock back out in order to uh, activate the trigger again. And that's why the ATF already ruled that that is not, does right. not convert it into an right. automatic weapon. And, and that leads me to another point that I just want to bring up. And it's, um, I think there's an issue that needs to at least be talked about, and that is definition by function. Um, definition, which I think is vague, just for many of the reasons I and Mark have debated back and forth here as to what our interpretation of what pulling the trigger means. But then I also think when we talk about if you define it as one pull of the trigger versus looking at the totality of the laws that or, or regulations that are currently in place, and you look at the, is it functional equivalent? Now, 
there have been some people who have done um, um, tests where they've taken a person who's pretty proficient with a semi-auto and pulled the trigger real fast, and they have used a bump fire and fired a gun, and then they used a semi-auto or a full auto and fired them. And interestingly enough, for that accomplished shooter, it is many and many times difficult to see the difference uh, with somebody who knows what they're doing between semi-automatic and the bump fire. Now, one major disadvantage to the bump fire that we found early on, and that is pretty well known, that it has a very high rate of malfunction. And that's due to, some of it has to, it doesn't really have nothing to do with the design of the device. It more has to do with the experience and the functional operation of the person trying to do it because it pretty much has to be pulled forward at the right pace and then maintained in that forward position. You don't actually pull it to the rear, whereas some people who are inexperienced, they start to pull it to the rear thinking that's going to do it, and that really doesn't do it. They just have to hold forward pressure, and it takes it takes practice. And I know this from personal experience because – a person who tries to do it early on, I had one person who got five single shots and then wondered, what am I doing wrong? They were real tense, and they were just holding on to it because they thought it was going to do something that it wasn't, and I just told them to relax, just push forward and let it kind of happen and let it recoil, recoil and then let it happen again. So there's those kinds of issues. Well, and the other reason I think that there are a lot of malfunctions is that the semi-automatic firearms, the AR-15, isn't designed to fire at that rate of speed, and it doesn't have some of the components. Uh, they're not machined in, to the same specifications as the ones in the M16, for example, where it is designed for that full automatic fire. So, so it doesn't recycle that quickly as reliably. Yeah. So that, you so, know, from so then a the reliability standpoint, absolutely. this is not the right yeah. tool. So then the debate continues, and that just kind of adds another thing. When they talk it's not designed for that, you've got a aftermarket item that's put on there. The issue is going to come down when they look at this is what really is it? And I have to say the demonstration I did for um, uh, the news that was out there, people called me, sent me texts, um, sent me emails, and they were like, oh my God, I can't believe that it did it. Well, that's because they many of them have never seen it. And um, quite and frankly, the first time- never, uh, You have been able to experience automatic fire yes, themselves. Yes. So for them, it was pretty awestruck. Uh, they were awestruck. And it looked to them like automatic fire. And I totally understand that. And I think that's where a lot of the debate is going to focus now. It's not what a definition of pulling the trigger or a, a piece of a, a gun versus, you know, piece of a trigger or the forend or a trigger assembly or this the stock finger rest or whatever the case is. It's going to be like, let's, I think if we just step back Relative to the issue and what it does, if we step back and not, not what we're going to do with it from a regulation standpoint, what is it that the bump fire does to the gun? My personal opinion, based on doing it and being around it and seeing auto fire, is it as closely as possible replicates full automatic fire as anything that I'm aware of currently on the on the on the market, including some of the people that are real good shooters. Because I'm a pretty good shooter, but I can't fire the trigger anywhere fast enough to make it sound like I'm shooting a machine gun. Well, true. And but the other aspect of it is if you are doing something that causes the firearm to fire rapidly and then that by itself is the definition that suddenly this mechanism has been converted to an automatic weapon and is now to be controlled under the National Firearms Act, which by the way, we'll get to this, I'm sure, but 
that's a that's a violation of the Second Amendment right there between the National Firearms Act and the Gun Control Acts of 68 and 86. You've already infringed the right to keep and bear arms. That's a different question. But the um, if you if you say if the if the ruling is that by doing something that allows you to fire the gun more rapidly, you have converted the action. Now you're going to leave people open to, I didn't press the trigger hard enough, and I got two rounds that went off just because I essentially did a bump fire without meaning to, and now they could be arrested. In fact, there's already been a situation where a man was arrested and and jailed because he had an uncontrolled, unregistered automatic weapon, and when in fact what happened was it had a malfunction. Right. And I've seen that happen. I had that happen to a, a, a gun that I was uh, using in my line of duty. Um, again, though, I want to keep the discussion to the mainstream. And so what I'd like to do now is just kind of shift gears a little bit because we, we talk about constitutionality versus I'm of the belief that the bump stock is an aftermarket accessory to a gun not governed under the Second Amendment. Mark obviously has a, a different opinion, and I'm going to give him a chance to kind of explain that to the listening audience because he adds a perspective relative to historical um, significance as well as kind of rational thought. He's obviously thought this through from his perspective, and I certainly give him the microphone now to kind of pass that on to the rest of you. Well, I I don't actually, you know, in the way that you say that, I don't disagree that it is in fact an aftermarket item. It's not technically a firearm. And so therefore you could argue, in fact, you do argue pretty well that it's not a firearm and therefore it's not an arms and therefore it has nothing to do with the right to keep and bear arms. On the other hand, if you can attach it to a firearm and we're going to say, no, it's not legal for you to attach it to a firearm, then what you're saying is you're infringing my right to do as I choose with the firearm that I have a right to own. So... I, I do believe that it would be inappropriate to say you can't attach this to a firearm because doing so would would say you are restricting my ability to have a firearm. Now, on the other hand, I'm somewhat of a Second Amendment absolutist. I believe that the words of those 27 words of the Second Amendment really meant what they were originally, the way they were originally written, they meant exactly what they said. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It doesn't say shall not be infringed unless somebody doesn't like it or unless it goes too fast or unless there are too many of them out there or unless you can fire too many times without reloading. There are no unless. It's just shall not be infringed. And given that... And notwithstanding all of the case law that that goes against that, because frankly, I believe that case law is unconstitutional and the courts and the Congress and the president have all abrogated their responsibility to support and defend the Constitution as written or as amended. If they don't like it, then they have to go through the amendment process. They just can't say, well, we're going to tax it. That's what they did in 1934 with the National Firearms Act. They said at the time they recognized that it was not legal or it would be unconstitutional for Congress to pass a law banning 
submachine guns, which was the focus at the time. The Thompson submachine gun was being used by the Chicago gangs, and that was, uh, you know, they said, well, what we've got to do is get rid of the submachine gun or at least take it out of the hands. They said, well, we can't get rid of it because if we did, then we would be an infringement on the right of people to keep and bear arms. So we're just going to put a tax on it. And the tax that they put on it was greater than the cost of the gun at the time. Now, today, $200 is not even a case of ammo. But uh, I, so, you know, the, the, although the, the same tax has applied since the original uh, in 1934, and it doesn't have anywhere near as much value or impediment now, it's still pretty inconvenient. Let and me interrupt you for just a minute, also, and, and also the other aspect of it is the approvals that have to go through that process. I want, I want you to continue, but I wanted to mention I did find that the two hundred dollars value in nineteen uh, or yeah in nineteen thirty four was current value three thousand five hundred eighty one dollars and two hundred sixteen in two thousand sixteen. So I thought that was an interesting. Uh, that's a yeah. That's just based on on inflation the standard inflation the rates. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you consider it as the as a percentage of the cost of the weapon, it's probably not quite that high. Well, household income was only four hundred to five hundred dollars a year. There you go. So yeah. So you looked at that way. So it was prohibitive to a large to a lot degree. Of well, when you mentioned that, you mentioned Chicago again, relative to maybe if we just get rid of Chicago, we'd solve today's problems, and we'll go back and it's kind of ex post facto. We got rid of their problems by just getting rid of Chicago because that's where the problems are. There originated. are a few good people up there. I mean, <laughs> yes, you know, there are. That was obviously a facetious statement. Yeah. But I want to. I, I want to make a point. We, we, we can have and we need to have a discussion. Um, I don't think there's any debate. And I think one of the things that stopped us from doing anything meaningful in the past is there's no discussion. There's emotions and then there's yelling and screaming and then they hope for it to die down and then that's it. So um, relative to this, and we're not going to uh, beat a dead horse, uh, uh, um, but we're going to just, uh, my recommendation, and I think this is something they should seriously look at, I think the ATF needs to totally revisit their rationale and make a determination about their original decision. Now, when you look under... Um, uh, Based on what? In, in, 2000 and, in 2009, the ATF made the determination when the people who manufactured these devices, they said it did not at the time, according to their interpretation, fall under the restrictions that would require it to be an NFA um, and there I, haven't been any changes in law. And so there haven't been any changes the in law. the same interpretation would come back with well, the same response, assuming I'm not sure. it was honest. I'm not sure. I'm saying that there's going to be different people look at this, and they're going to look at the totality of the circumstances like they always do, and they're going to make a decision. Obviously, this current incident obviously brought it to their attention, and it's going to be a factor. They may decide the same thing. I don't know. I don't know what those doc. I, I got to believe there's documentation relative to the decision that was made that was sent off to the companies that manufactured this in 2009, 2010, that made them make a decision. I know recently we've had back and forth opinions relative to the uh, the stabilizing brace that was yeah, used but, on but ARs. The, but, the, but, that, but that particular decision was based on something that was not logical. Well, and there was, I mean, there was but, no... But, but again, that's you and I saying not logical versus... I don't know. It I don't know what they based by this the documentation. On. Well, and again, I don't know if this was either because I don't know which documentation they referred to, and I don't know how they, how they. I think you just read it. Well, I, I read it, but again, it's subject to interpretation, and I think that's where the discussion is going to be had. Now, the bad thing I think here is that there have been people who say that once we open the can of worms, 
that we're going to slide down a slippery slope. And if they get the bump stock, then they get the suppressor, then they get the semi-automatic rifle, then they get the 30-round mags or vice versa. And, and then the they get that, for that, that, and that is and that. everything from 1968 through 1995. In addition to the language from Diane Feinstein and, and Nancy Pelosi, who said, oh, they don't, right on, right on camera, right on camera, in. she said, right on camera, she said, if you think we're going to stop there, they're, they're, they're ridiculous, as if, oh, no, we're going to get everything we want or everything that, you know, we think we should have. I mean, there again, the discussion stops right there in their minds. And, and, and I'm not going to say it's all one-sided because I haven't heard the opposition um, because I've heard what I think are very reasonable responses from the organizations I mentioned earlier. And let me add to that the Buckeye Firearms Association, which is our Ohio-based um, uh, uh, advocacy group. They've given a pretty um, uh, uh, direct opinion on their stance on it, but nonetheless, they, they give an opinion. And um, they're, they're looking, they would love to be involved in the discussion, I'm sure. So um, you've got these groups out there, the NRA, uh, SAMI, um, the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Second Amendment Foundation, who by if you follow this industry, if you follow shooting and you like to stay up on issues, they're the organizations that pretty much lead us in the information we acquire, the research that's done, um, all the information well, that's the distributed. Heller cases and yeah. the McDonald case. Absolutely. The, the, you know, Second the, Amendment Foundation and NRA yeah. were both involved the, in those. The prior the prior cases that are involved in and, you know, Mark brought to my attention last week and we hadn't reported on it. There was a. Uh, a case in, um, uh, is it the Ninth Circuit? No, not no the it's uh, the D.C. Circuit. D.C. Circuit, right. where they basically said that D.C. can't continue to restrict people from gaining um, concealed handgun licenses and getting firearms um, simply because they didn't pass a, what's the term they use, Mark? Uh, it's a, yeah, Just cause. Just they got to show just cause. Instead right. of, they basically said, look, we've already made it pretty definitive um, in the prior, at least two or three prior major cases that uh, it doesn't have to be just cause. And it's way much, it's much less than that. And and you better start abiding by the, the, the regulations that we've set, set And forth. in fact, that was decided back in July, but everyone assumed that uh, the D.C. would go back to the court and say, this, since this was just a three-court panel, a three-judge panel, they would go back and say, we want an en banc hearing. And the, and the court said, no, you're not going to get one. And then D.C. decided not to try to take it to the Supreme Court after losing that next step. So that decision stands for D.C., and it'll be it's a it's a powerful decision if you want to read through it. And, and the um, other thing, Mark, it, that's significant the, about that decision is they the reason they don't want to go to the Supreme Court is because they know that it's going to have, be, have far more reaching effect to California, Illinois, and some of the other places where they're trying to do the same thing. Right. And if you want to look it up, it's Wren versus D.C. Uh, w r e n n. It's uh, it's an interesting decision, and the and the arguments that uh, the majority make are pretty powerful, and I suspect that may have had something to do with why D.C. did not want to take it to the Supreme Court, because the uh, majority opinion basically quotes the Supreme Court repeatedly throughout the decision, and it's, uh, it's, it would be very difficult for the Supreme Court to go back and say, no, he's wrong. He, he didn't quote us correctly, because he really did. Um, I think that one other thing I want to say, and that is what the, the Second Amendment Foundation, uh, what their position has been on this. They sent out a, a release that says uh, the Second Amendment Foundation and Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms support a productive dialogue concerning bump stocks, national concealed carry reciprocity, and the proposed Hearing Protection Act. We recognize that banning firearms accessories is not a solution to violent crime. 
And there are unfortunately too many people who have forgotten to read that last or to understand that last statement. And all of these proposals that are coming out of the left that says, oh, we're going to have to do something have failed to even pass their own test and admit that they failed to pass their own test on saying, well, what would what you're proposing have done about that situation? And all of them admit nothing. And nor would they have any impact on future situations. And that, exactly. you're exactly right about that. And that's, I heard Wayne LaPierre, the the um, president of the National Rifle Association, bring that very executive vice president, uh, but yeah, bring that very issue up the other day when he was on Meet the Na- Meet the Nation or one of those talk shows, and he said that uh, let's use this as a measure. Anything that they have advocated in the back in the past, or anything that they would promote to move forward in the future, would have had no impact on this or most other incidents. It's pretty amazing. Well, this is a lot of fun, and unfortunately, there is no way we're going to finish this today. But uh, we would invite you to join us again next week on our podcast. This is Mark Avery and Jeff Pedro for Shooting from the Hip podcast. Thinking about learning to shoot? Considering buying a gun? Want to enjoy the sport of shooting with a friend or family member? How about getting involved in competitive shooting? Sim Trainer offers all these opportunities and more. Visit, call, or stop by. Visit us at sim-trainer.com. Call the range at 293-3914. Or stop by the range at 2031 Dryden Road, then listen to the podcast by clicking the radio link at sim-trainer.com.